Well, we are in sermon number three of our Philippians uh, fall sermon. And uh, if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. The verses also be up on the screen. A common saying that we as adults have is, hindsight is 2020. But when we are going through something that's really challenging or really difficult, it's pretty hard to see any point to it sometimes. We're usually just kind of confused when they're in the middle of it. And we say things like, God, I hate this. This is, this is hard. This is stupid. I don't see any good coming out of this really tough thing I'm going through. What is going on? Sometimes we don't know. And sometimes there isn't a reason other than we live in a broken, sinful world and people have the free choice to do hurtful things to each other. Other times, though, God does make it plain to us what the redemptive silver lining was to the hard thing that we went through. Hindsight is twenty twenty. In other words, looking back sometimes, you finally see the good things now that resulted from the hard thing you went through before. And the Apostle Paul personally kind of experienced this. And uh, last year, I got to preach through the book of Acts, which is kind of the backstory of this amazing book of Philippians. And so we know that Paul had quite a crazy two and a half year period. He had gone to Jerusalem. Uh, a riot had started. Uh, the Roman soldiers went in and pulled Paul out of the riot before he was killed. Uh, he was put in prison. He went through multiple trials finally moved to Caesarea. He was kept in jail for over two years, and then he appealed to Caesar, so they put him on a ship for Rome, but a massive storm happened, and they were shipwrecked on the island of Malta, and uh, super cool. Steve, who's our sound guy today, he and his wife just got back from her trip, and they got to go to Malta. I think that's so amazing, and uh, he said, yeah, there's a statue there for the Apostle Paul where it was shipwrecked and all this kind of stuff. Um, so Paul survives the shipwreck, everyone survives, that was on, they wash up on the beach, they're uh, cared for, and a year later they continue their, ver- their voyage, eventually get to Rome, and Paul is immediately placed under house arrest. And he is chained to a Roman soldier, a member of the Praetorian Guard. If you think of the U.S. Secret Service that guards the United States President, That was the job of the Praetorian Guard, guard Caesar and his household. When Paul was going through it, I am sure there are many, many moments when Paul wondered, what is going on? I'm sure his prayers went something along the lines of, Jesus, what is going on? This is brutally hard. This is not a lot of fun right now. Why am I under arrest when I should be out planting churches and seeing people come to faith? I'm sure those were the kind of questions Paul was asking. But finally here in the book of Philippians, verses 12 through 14 of chapter 1, Paul has his hindsight is 2020 moment. This is what it says. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear through the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord 
and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. So it all kind of comes into focus for the Apostle Paul. He realizes that everything he had gone through for the previous two and a half years, from riots to imprisonment to shipwrecks, being under house arrest, it was actually God's way of bringing the good news of the gospel into the very heart of the Roman Empire, right to Caesar's palace himself. Not the one in Vegas, but the real one. Uh, It's real Caesar's palace. Um, And so these soldiers, these praetorian guard, are actually chained up to Paul. I looked this up, and it says they would have had a four-hour shift, and then a new soldier would come and, and rotate them off. And those four hours, Paul was doing things like dictating the book of Philippians to Onesimus, the guy, his friend, who would write it all down. And so they were constantly talking about Jesus and what Jesus had done and his work in the world and the gospel. And soldier after soldier after soldier came to faith. Now I can almost see Paul going, wow, this is incredible. And then these soldiers would come back and other people would come back and say, you know what, it's spreading. Even in Caesar's household, people are coming to faith, kind of blowing his sandals off. I was going to say socks, but they didn't really wear socks in that part of the world at that time. As a side note, you may have noticed in those little scriptures or in your Bible, there's a little tiny uh, brackets with the letter B. And that kind of indicates the footnote. If you got the online version, you click on that, and this is what it says. The Greek word for brothers and sisters, Adelphoi, refers here to believers, both men and women, as part of God's family. Now, we read that in 2022 as Canadians half a world away and go, of course, yeah, church, men, women, it's all good. But if we take off our own cultural glasses for a second and we realize what it was like in first century Roman culture, that was actually radical. That was revolutionary because women were so suppressed and oppressed in first century Greco-Roman culture. They weren't, didn't have many rights, weren't allowed to speak in court. And really kind of the public sphere, they were like, oh, women, just stay over there off to the side. And, uh, and along comes Jesus. And Jesus just gives so much dignity, so different. This is Celsus, one of the Roman historians, who clearly didn't think highly of women and children. He said of the church at one point, he said the church is just full of the silly and the mean with women and children. That was his insult to the church. And so then Jesus, in total distinction, comes along and gives incredible value and dignity to women and says you are valued equal members in the church community. Absolutely revolutionary. You know, I got a chance on Friday to go down to the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Ceremony down at Transfer Beach, which was really beautifully well done. Great turnout, all those kind of things. And obviously, there is a moment in our history where the church needs to majorly repent of the evil it did in establishing indigenous schools and uh, doing really terrible things to our indigenous brothers and sisters. And there's been other moments in history. And I found it really helpful and challenging this week to, to go back and read that and realize that that is the result of Christians down through her history that got consumed with power, wedding the church and the government at that point in history, 
and made just terrible, terrible choices. But when you read the New Testament, that is not God's ultimate design. God has designed the church to be not a thing of oppression, but really of liberation. And that's really helpful to remember. All right, so God is doing some pretty incredible things in the Apostle Paul's life, in him and through him. And the spillover effect is what we see in verse 14. He says, And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. What a great place to come to in life where other people are inspired to action because of your life. I think that's amazing. Your love and service to Jesus ends up being an inspiration to others. And this morning, I want to challenge two specific age groups in our church. First group are retirees, maybe in your mid-60s, 70s, 80s. You have many, many years of following Jesus. You have all those experiences. You've seen the ups and downs, but you can testify that God has been faithful to you during your life. And I want to challenge you this morning. This is not your moment to permanently go on holiday. Although Arizona Palm Springs in Florida are amazing and you should go there and have some heat and enjoy that, but permanently checking out of your family's life, your kids, your grandkids, is a missed opportunity. You have an incredible chance, just like the Apostle Paul did, to inspire people to become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel. And I want to challenge you this morning, if, if that's your stage of life, think about how you can strategically pour into the, your family and the younger generation in our church. To people maybe in their 40s, 50s, early 60s, my challenge to you is, is to think about maybe mentoring someone. Take your experiences of the past and present, use them to form and shape another person's life. Maybe somebody younger or may just be a new believer who's the same age as you. Don't underestimate the power of inspiration in someone's life. There's a great uh, account in Chuck Swindoll's book, Living Above the Level of Mediocrity. He talks about a man named Bruce Larson. Bruce grew up in Chicago, and Bruce remembers distinctly being in his church as a young teen. He was 12 years old. And he was sitting with his family, and in comes, it was a big church, and in those days, they didn't have debit and credit and PayPal and all the other things that we use uh, for offering today. They simply had offering plates that they would pass down the aisle. And because it was a big church, they needed 12 people to do it. And so this Sunday, there was 12 men that came down the aisles, marched up to the front, and the pastor handed out all the offering plates, and they stopped and prayed for the offering. And Bruce Larson says, oddly enough, that was the most inspirational moment of the service for him. And the reason was that one of those 12 men, his name was Frank Lesh. And Frank wasn't a very imposing figure. He kind of seems like a really jolly kind of grandpa guy. But in Chicago, he was actually a living legend. This is the guy that stood up to the gangster Al Capone. 
And there was a time in the United States called Prohibition, and it meant the sale of alcohol was illegal. That was a massive opportunity for gangsters like Al Capone to make huge dollars in smuggling and selling alcohol illegally. Right over on the Sunshine Coast where I grew up, there is Smuggler's Cove. And uh, part of the reason it's named that is because during that prohibition area, rum would be made and taken across the line in boats. Interesting. Uh, the local and state police, even the FBI in the U.S., were afraid to oppose Al Capone. But Frank Lesh stood up and said, you know what, we're going to take this on. So he, he was a lawyer. And he was a strong Christian guy, and without any government support, he organized a group called the Chicago Crime Commission. And it was a group of citizens and lawyers who were determined to take Mr. Capone to court and put him away. And his life, as you can well imagine, was in constant danger. There were threats to his life and his family, uh, but he never wavered. Ultimately, they launched this brilliant public relations campaign because the public had kind of seen Al Capone in kind of a romantic kind of way. They're like, man, he's just this amazing dashing figure of a gangster. And so these guys realized they need to kind of change public perception and say, well, you may have kind of this romantic image of him, but this is the guy gunning people down in the streets. And so they labeled him public enemy number one. And these were the ransom posters all over Chicago. And ultimately, they were successful at getting Capone behind bars. Frank Lesh lived out his faith. So Bruce Larson, this man who was recalling this years later as an adult, looking back to himself as a 12-year-old sitting in church, and he said, here's what would happen. Those guys would come down the aisle to collect the offering, and my dad would kind of poke me and point at Frank Lesh. And he said, I'd look over at my dad, and he said, occasionally there'd be a little tear running down my dad's cheek. And he said, the reason was, he said, my dad was a Chicago businessman, and the reason he could run his business at that point in history was because of Frank Lesh. And he said, for my dad and for all of us, this was and is what it looks like to courageously live out your faith. And I want to say to all of us this morning, we live in chaotic cultural times. I have two girls in high school. Wow, it is a constant parade of crazy stories of what our culture is doing. And here's the thing, if we don't intentionally invest in our children, in our teenagers, in our young adults, then by default, they're going to pick up their life direction and wisdom, not from Jesus, but from our current culture. Make that bold move. Decide to influence and mentor the next generation. It's what the Apostle Paul did, and he inspired so many people. All right, we're going to continue on with our passage, and we're going to see exactly what Paul continued to do. It says in verse 15, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, 
not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. I want to show you a picture of a place in England called Bath. And uh, it's an ancient hot springs. And when the Romans got to England, they thought, this is awesome. Free hot water. This is incredible. And so they built this thing. It was kind of a combination spa slash Roman worship center. And as English archaeologists have uncovered all this stuff all around the hot springs, they have found a ton of clay tablets called curse tablets. And these are prayers that were written down and put on these clay tablets. And people would name someone who had hurt them, tell what the crime was, and then specifically ask the gods to punish them. So here's one. Dosimidus has lost two gloves. He asks that the person who has stolen them should lose his mind and his eyes in the temple at the place where the goddess appoints. Now, no matter how much you love your gloves, that seems a little excessive. Like, you're going to lose your mind and go blind. Wow. All right, well, if you've seen movies like Ben-Hur and Gladiator, you're pretty familiar with the uh, chariot races that happened in the Roman Colosseum. And again, they have found lots of cursed tablets uh, excavated around there. And here's one from one chariot driver to another. He says, I invoke you, holy angels and holy names, tie up, block, strike, overthrow, harm, destroy, kill, and shatter Eucharios, the charioteer, and all his horses tomorrow in the arena of Rome. Let the starting gates not open properly. Let him not compete quickly. Let him not pass. Let him not turn properly. Let him not receive the honors. Let him collapse. Let him be bound. Let him be broken up. And let him be dragged behind. Now, modern athletes kind of trash talk each other once in a while. You'll hear that. But man, this is a nothing compared to that. Holy smokes. So, a reasonable question is, they found all these curse tablets. Have they ever found a bless my enemy tablet? The answer is no. Zero. None. If you prefer Spanish, nada. Pastor and author John Ortberg in his phenomenal book, Who is This Man?, comments on this lesson from history. And he says, people did not pray to Zeus or to Bacchus to bless their enemies. Fierce loyalty to your friends, fierce opposition to your enemies was considered noble. The gods were there to help you get what you want, and if you got hurt, what you wanted was to get even. Literature professor David Constant says that forgiveness as we know it did not exist in the Greco-Roman Empire. People had various means to appease anger and reestablish relationships. But those were all on the basis of honor and shame and status. It wasn't forgiveness like we know it. So imagine culture is dominated by that, and then all of a sudden, along comes Jesus. Totally 180% opposite. 
Think of Jesus' teaching on forgiveness. Matthew 18, then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. And then there's Jesus preaching about forgiveness in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. They may be children of your Father in heaven. So Jesus taught about it. He preached about it. And then Jesus himself lived it out in his worst moment of agony on the cross. Jesus famously says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And the example of Jesus began to change culture to the extent that 2,000 years later, even the most secular person that wants nothing to do with the church today can hardly imagine having a personal friendship with someone that doesn't involve forgiveness. You don't have to live very long to realize that if two people are in a close friendship or romantic relationship, and forgiveness isn't part of it, that relationship isn't going to last very long at all. What an amazing thing. And we see that lived out by the Apostle Paul here. These people are his rivals. They don't like Paul. And Paul's response, not to get angry, he says, what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether false motives are true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. Now, those verses kind of sound odd to us. They're like, why would someone preach about Jesus from wrong motives? That seems really odd. Well, we need to remember that Paul was kind of a divisive figure in the first century. Paul was the missionary to the Gentile world, the non-Jewish world. Now, he himself was ethnically Jewish. And Paul argued really strongly to his fellow Jews who had become Christians. He said, we cannot put our culture, our standards, our rules, everything we have as Jewish people, we can't dump that onto these non-Jewish Christian believers. No non-Jewish persons should have to do all the requirements of the law to find salvation in Jesus. And that ticked off a huge amount of Paul's Jewish Christian friends. So probably what we have here in Rome is ethnic Jews that didn't like the strong stand that Paul took. Paul was ultimately saying, if someone's a Christian who didn't grow up Jewish and they want to eat pork and shellfish, let them do it. If they want to meet on Sunday instead of Saturday, let them do it they want to go to a house church and not ever go through a synagogue, let them do it. It's all good. But now that Paul's under house arrest and he's chained up to a guard, these kind of slightly grumpy Jewish Christians decide, hey, this is our chance. Paul's out of the game. Let's go preach and see if we can do better than Paul. Kind of this rivalry. Sounds totally crazy, as if it was some sort of race. But that's what was happening. But I love the way Paul responds. It's so forgiving, so warm, big-hearted. But what does it matter? 
Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. And when I thought about this week, that this week as I was preparing, I thought, you know what? There is a beautiful lesson for each and every one of us. Because unlike the Roman culture all around it, Paul does completely the opposite. He doesn't write a curse tablet. He rejoices. So what about you and I? What about when someone we know achieves great success? What's our gut reaction? Is it envy? Is it jealousy? Or do we stand up and cheer them on? We go, well done. That's so great. I mean, it can be at an individual level. It could be at a church level. What if one of our sister churches in town, like the Rock Christian Fellowship or Bethel Pentecostal, what if they all of a sudden saw hundreds and hundreds of people coming to faith? Our gut reaction should be to stand up and applaud and cheer and praise God for what's happening. Ultimately, Christians are about the kingdom of God. Maybe you had a brother or sister, and all growing up, it was kind of a rivalry. Who could achieve the best? Who could do the best? Who could win your parents' approval? All those kind of things. That is something you need to let go of in life. And when your rival, when your brother, your sister, whoever you're competing with achieves, you want to say, I love it. I rejoice. Christ is glorified. Well, I think all through his life, Christ had continued to work on the character of the Apostle Paul. And God was using him to inspire people. As you reflect on this sermon this week, maybe you have a chance at some point to go for a walk. And I challenge you to think about that. What is your honest gut level reaction? Are you envy at others' successes? Or do you rejoice and cheer them on? Well, we started this sermon talking about hindsight is twenty twenty, And even though the Apostle Paul was chained up to a Roman guard, he could already see God's purposes in all that he had been through. Paul was just one man, but God used him powerfully, used his example to inspire all of those Christian believers in the city of Rome. They went out and preached the good news of the gospel in their words and their deeds. Most did it out of good motives. See, the kingdom of God grew. Some did it out of rivalry with Paul. As we conclude today, I want to leave you with one simple dominating question. Is my life inspiring anyone else to follow Jesus? If the answer is yes, then be encouraged. If the answer is no, maybe it's time to do some soul searching.